Today on Entrepreneur, we've got a fabulous guest, and he's oculoplastic surgeon Dr. Michael Chappell from right here in Kansas City. And we are going to go a rapid fire of topics, and I will tell you that this discussion is way more than skin deep. So stay tuned for our podcast. All right, among our topics are sources of ptosis. Is it dehiscence? Is it Mueller's muscle? We're talking about the different fillers that we have for cosmetic and aesthetic improvements. We are going to discuss all the different ways that we can fix ptosis, lagophthalmus, brow lifts, blepharospasm, and chalazians, our favorite here in optometric practice. And there are all sorts of things we can do. And we're also going to go through the difference between a plastic surgeon and an oculoplastic surgeon. So stay tuned for a fine podcast from a local surgeon who is new to the Kansas City area, Dr. Michael Chappell. Welcome to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Harry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about Wizards of Eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? Well, these are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus, because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day, in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit Entrepreneur.com where you'll find our our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetreprenur.com. Today on the podcast, we're pleased to have oculoplastic surgeon Michael Chapel. He practices in Moyes Eye Center here in Kansas City. And as we think about oculoplastics, sometimes it's confusing. We don't know exactly what the oculoplastic surgeon will do, won't do, and there's so much crossover. So we're gonna get into the weeds on that. We have a lot of questions to ask for Dr. Chapel. And uh, let's start out, uh, Dr. Chapel. tell us a little about your journey into ophthalmology, where you're from, about your training, and I should say we are recording this live in our studios at uh, Brill Eye Center here in Mission, Kansas. So Dr. Chapel just lives a little bit away. So we're nice to have you right here. Usually we're doing these remote. Yes, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I'm an oculoplastic surgeon, uh, which, which means I've done ophthalmology training and then a couple of years of oculoplastic surgery afterwards. Uh, but I'm originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. 
Um, I grew up uh, in a house with uh, a physician. My mother was an ophthalmologist growing up, and my father was an English professor. Wow. So uh, people would call our house and ask for Dr. Chapel, and we had to figure out which one it was because one had a Ph.D. and one had an M.D. But uh, it was a fun place to grow up. You had um, a bathroom, though, right? We, yeah, exactly. Okay, that's good. Exactly. That's amazing. We did. We did. Uh, we wore shoes in Arkansas, too, sometimes. Okay. So, um, but then my dad was a professor at uh, Hendricks College, which is where I went for my undergraduate degree. It was about 30 minutes from where we grew up. So uh, it was fun to be in college there is where I met my wife. Uh, I did uh, uh, medical school at the University of Arkansas, and then afterwards for my ophthalmology residency, I was able to do that at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. So I was in San Francisco for four years, and then was fortunate enough to be selected for an oculoplastic surgery fellowship, and that was in Seattle, Washington. I imagine that's pretty difficult to get. There, there are about 20 or so slots a year, um, and there's a, a fair number of people that apply for those, so I feel very fortunate that I was- 20 in the country? 20 in the country. Wow. Um, and, and right now, there's a, and, uh, it, that fellowship was through the American Society of Ophthalmic Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons, which is called ASOPERS for short. Um, and currently in the country, there's about 600, I think, uh, practicing ASOPERS members. There's more internationally, but um, in, the, in the United States, there's that many. Um, and part of that fellowship is doing a two-year accredited fellowship uh, at one of these uh, medical centers. Um, and then we have to write a research thesis and then pass a, a, an additional set of oculoplastics boards before we uh, finish our training. Plus so, the ophthalmology plus boards. Plus the ophthalmology boards, exactly. Um, so lots of tests. I'm very happy to be done with those tests. Um, but then uh, I actually moved, uh, after my training, moved back to Little Rock, Arkansas, and then joined practice with my mother in her ophthalmology practice for a couple of years, which was very fun. Um, she was looking to retire, and there was a couple of comprehensive ophthalmologists that were taking over the practice, so I, I went and joined a different oculoplastics practice in town for a few years. Uh, but then over the last year or two, my wife and I sort of tried to figure out if there was other places we wanted to be and, and got recruited to the practice here in Kansas City area, and, and it's been a really great fit. It's really it's wonderful for our family. Uh, we're having a great time being up here and getting to do oculoplastics in a, in a multi-specialty ophthalmology and optometry practice. Well, that's nice. It's nice that you are appreciating that optometry and ophthalmology work together well. I think that's actually the best model when we all do what we do best. Absolutely. And and in oculoplastics, I'm, I re rely on referrals from ophthalmologists and optometrists, as well as other medical specialties. Um, and because we're... Um, a smaller subspecialty, uh, and we really don't have very many chronic um, patients. Most of the patients we see are things where we see them and, and address the problem and then send them back to the referring doctors. Um, so I, I, we need people to be coming in and out of our practices a lot, and so it's, it's uh, something very important to try to build those relationships with the community and with the, with the other physicians in town. So with oculoplastics, um, I'm sure you met most of them. Uh, is it competitive for oculoplastic surgeons or... Perhaps you might say, um, you know, this really, this oculoplastic colleague is really good with cancer, and I'm really good with construction. Hopefully we work yes. well together, or is there turf battles among you? There's really not, and especially in the area up here, um, I, my experience so far has been that it's a very collegial group, very professional group. There are uh, definitely uh, differences, even within the small subspecialty of oculoplastics, there are differences in what people focus on. There's some practices that do exclusively cosmetic work. There's some practices that do exclusively uh, oncology and, and reconstructive work. Uh, fortunately, 
fortunately for me, I get a, a wide variety of those different things, which was one of the main aspects that attracted me to oculoplastics in the first place, was having a nice breadth of practice. Um, but it is nice to have colleagues in town, or, or and not just in the town here, but across the country that we can share patients with for second opinions. Or um, I had a patient this week who had a very a significant problem, and I knew a doctor across the country that was the expert in that, so we sent the patient very on good. to them. So it works great. Very good. And I think that's the way we all work best, where we're... we're think what's in the best interest of the patient. Absolutely. So um, got another question here, and I think this comes up often in our practices when patients ask us, I want to get my lids done. Mm-hmm. I always try to direct them to an oculoplastic surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of plastic surgery as maybe bigger things, bigger sutures, sculpting like stone versus uh, oculoplastics, you know, dealing with finer sutures and more like diamond cutters, more mm-hmm. precise movements. So am I thinking about that the right way or? Uh, it is. Uh, the, the, the training that I was uh, able to uh, undergo uh, really uh, as an ophthalmologist and oculoplastic surgeon, we really concentrate on the eyes and then the face outside, moving on outside of the eyes. Okay. So, um, some plastic surgery training, and there are plastic surgeons that are very good uh, uh, cosmetic surgeons on the face for eyelids and other things, but that's the majority of the things that I concentrate on. Um, and so uh, I feel confident and comfortable that when patients come and see an oculoplastic surgeon, um, they're getting uh, uh, an opinion on how their eyes interact with the rest of their face and their windows to the world, no, right. no pun intended right. there. Um, and the other most important thing it, in, in regards to patient care is being an ophthalmologist and an eye care physician first, the, the number one thing that we don't want to do is, is make it so that we're causing more ocular problems from what we're doing. Right. Um, so my biggest fear uh, as a dry eye uh, specialty practice is that they're going to screw up the lids. You know, they're going right. to they're going to make them look um, not normal. You know, they're going to make them look wide-eyed. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to see three millimeters of nocturnal leg ophthalmos. Right. Uh, I had a patient actually yesterday whose temporal lids, you know, were were was lower than their nasal. And usually mm-hmm. we want the normal pathway to go from temporal to nasal. Absolutely. And 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 she admitted she had terribly botched uh, mm-hmm. um, plastic surgery on her lids. And I thought. Boy, you know, I mean, that lady probably needs some lid work done, mm-hmm. and she wasn't complaining too much. Um, so what do you do when you see like a botched plastic mm-hmm. surgery of lids? I it, mean, do you, it, it's a difficult do you fess it up and say, you know, I would have done it a little differently, or what do you do? It, it is a difficult problem, and and uh, I, I, I see a fair number of these patients that, that come in, and, and um, there are obviously some um, outcomes of surgery that no one expects. Right. Um, but but the goal of, of the procedures that I do and the training that we get as oculoplastic surgeons is to is to be conservative in the way that we we work on folks, conservative in the way we construct things. Um, people, the vast majority of the people that I work with, even um, strictly cosmetic patients, don't want to look like they've had cosmetic surgery. Right. They want to look natural. Too stretched out. Too stretched out. Everybody comes in and says, you know, I don't want to look like Kenny Rogers. You know, they, they see those people on TV and they say, I don't even know what's wrong with them, but I don't want to look like those people. Um, And uh, my goal when I talk to people about surgery is that we want to make them look like a refreshed version of themselves. Uh, We're not trying to make them look drastically different. Um, I don't want them to go uh, to their their church or to their 
neighborhood and, and people say, oh my gosh, who did that to you? That's not yeah. the goal of what we're doing. Um, we're really trying to make them look like a refreshed version of themselves um, and not overdo things. And, and that doesn't mean that other um, plastic surgeons and facial plastic surgeons don't have that same mindset. Um, but I really pay attention to how much tissue we're working on uh, to make sure that when we do these things, we don't overdo it to, to lead to dry eyes and other problems. It's much easier to come back and, and take more tissue to tighten things more than to try to replace that with something that's gone. So it's, it's better to be conservative with these patients. And I tell them if, if eight or 10 years goes by and we have to come back and, and touch up more and take some more tissue away or tighten things up, we can do that. That's much, much better than taking away too much tissue and, and then struggling to try to put things back together. So. Great. Yeah, I like the refresh version. So walk us through, what are the entry points for patients into your practice? Mm -hmm. um, you know, are they self-referring themselves mm -hmm. because uh, they want to look 10 years younger? Mm -hmm. They just had that uh, genetic composition that maybe they're looking a little saggy. Mm -hmm. um, are they going through optometry and their, and their doctor says, hey, you're, you're, you know, your lid's hanging a little low? Mm -hmm. um, walk us through that and um, be great. Sure. Uh, it, you do not have to have a referral to see an oculoplastic surgeon, um, but the vast majority of the patients that I see come from referring optometrists, um, ophthalmologists, dermatologists, ear, nose, and throat doctors, um, but the majority, especially in this area, from optometrists. Um, and they come in, and sometimes the patient will come with a complaint and say, you know, my eyelids are droopy, or I don't, I'm, I don't like the way they look, or I'm not seeing as well as I want to be. A lot of the times, it's it's a it's a optometrist or ophthalmologist who's paying attention to these things. It says these patients are complaining about their vision or complaining about certain things, and they haven't quite put it together that these eyelids are contributing to these things. Um, and so a, a lot of times when we're able to uh, see these folks, they say, well, my eyelids have been like this for years. I didn't know anybody could do something about this, or I didn't realize how much of a component that was uh, into my visual difficulties and other things. Um, and it's, it's fun to see those people. And I'll, and I'll have some patients that will come through with very droopy eyelids or, or droopy tissues, um, and their spouse will bring them in and say, can you work on so-and-so's eyelids because they're really drooping? And the patient says, I'm not really paying that close of attention. I don't know why this is a problem for me. And I give those people homework, and their homework is we send them out. We say, when you're riding in the car, when you're watching TV, when you're reading a book, actually take your finger and lift your eyelid and your eyebrow out of the way and see if that opens things up. The vast majority of those patients will come back and see me within a month or two and say, oh, my God, now that you pointed that out to me, it does make a big difference for me. Um, and so that's the majority of the patients that I see are referred into those circumstances. But um, we also have a lot of patients who come in uh, because they have seen a friend or a neighbor or a colleague who have had something done by me or a colleague of mine um, and say, well, you look, they had a, a, an issue and you and hopefully made them look great. And, and I think that uh, I'd like your opinion on some things too. So I see a fair number of patients just for cosmetic referrals to come in and say, are there things that we could do to try to refresh uh, my look? And, um, and, and we see those patients as well. Um, and and mo the, the, most of the procedures and surgeries that I do, there's not a vast uh, difference between how we do them for functional or vision blocking or insurance uh, covered reasons versus the cosmetic reasons. I want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to look great when we're done, even if it's something that's covered by the insurance uh, plans that they have or if it's something that is obstructing their vision. So, so, so to qualify um, mm -hmm. for, let's say, uh, for blepharitosis, um, do we still have to do a visual field for that? Yes. Currently, um, in, in the Kansas City metro area, um, all insurance companies and 
uh, including Medicare, require a usually three things is what I tell patients. Okay. They have to have a functional complaint, and the complaint isn't a very nice word, right. but complaint meaning they can't come in and just say, I don't like the way this looks. They have to come in saying, I feel like this is blocking my vision when I'm doing something, driving, mm-hmm. reading, watching TV. Activities. Like activities. Daily, activities. Exactly. So that's number one. We have to have a photograph showing how droopy things are. Um, and, and, and we measure the distances between the, the light reflex and the eyelid okay. margins, the margin Plus reflex distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I see uh, that written as uh, MRD. MRD, yes. Um, MRD1. And, and then we also have to have a peripheral vision test uh, showing their, how much vision, visual obstruction that they have. Um, usually those are untaped, and then we tape the eyelids right. up. And the untaped, for most plans, has to be within 20 degrees of fixation. And then there has to be an uh, improvement of up to 30% or more improvement with taping. Every insurance plan is a little bit different. That's the Medicare requirements. Right. That's what I'm quoting here. Which uh, test do you like? Um, we uh, currently am using a Humphrey uh, yeah. uh, visual field for uh, what we're doing. It's an automated test. Um, but um, which, which program do you use for that? One of my superstar mm. techs actually went in and made a, uh, and it's an automated um, uh, but uh, kinetic visual field test. So rather than having the static flashing right. lights, it's actually a moving target like the Quick old Goldman fields. Goldman field or a tangent. Yes. Or, or a tangent screen, exactly. That standard used to be actually a tangent screen. It, it, and, and you can still use a tangent screen or a Goldman. You can, it's hard to find a, a Goldman machine these days. Right. I mean, um, but by that. doing that, we took our testing down significantly, which made it much less of a burden on our patients. Um, and I think it's a more accurate de- uh, depiction of their visual deficits from that kind of testing. So kinetic so, test. Kinetic test. Um, and th- you can use an automated uh, test as well. Right. Um, but most of the time, uh, we we encourage patients and, and sort of show them uh, what we're, we, we, we discuss how, what to do with that testing, because most patients who have droopy eyelids tend to use their forehead muscles and eyebrows to recruit right. things up. And so we have them relax when we're doing that testing. So we have an accurate depiction of their peripheral vision deficits. So, so it sounds like blepharoplasty is one of your most popular surgeries. It is. So that's where the, the top eyelids just drooping over kind of the pupil region and maybe obstructing their distance vision. Uh, Let me take a step back for just a minute, if you guys don't mind. So um, the the breadth of oculoplastics these days, or or the the newer way of describing that is oculofacial plastic and reconstructive surgery. The reason we threw the facial stuff in there is because we do work on other parts of the face, and especially depending on the parts of the country, um, there have been some doctors who want to do more on various parts of the face than others. So, but in that, the, the classic oculoplastic surgery is surgery on eyelids, eye sockets, or the orbit, and the the tear duct system. And so in that, um, the most common procedures that I do are upper eyelid surgeries, including blepharoplasties or blepharotosis surgery. Blepharoplasty surgery is when the redundant or extra skin of the upper eyelids um, is removed with a surgical procedure. Again, most of the time, that's when the eyelid skin is is so stretchy and redundant that it hangs over the eyelashes and gets in the way of the peripheral vision. And that procedure is uh, a a simple performed outpatient procedure where we remove some of the excessive skin and, and sew the tissues back together. That's different than blepharotosis surgery or ptosis surgery for short. And that's when the muscles of the upper eyelids are relaxed or or um, causing droop of the eyelids. And that's when we see folks whose the edges of their eyelids or the eyelid margin where the eyelashes are is hanging in front of the pupils of the vision. Right. And those, I like to put some phenylephrine in there and 
And that's a trick to see if it's Mueller's muscle. Do people still do that? Absolutely. I do that And all. then they know, wow, something can be done, Absolutely. and it's almost immediate. It is. And, and I do that on, on the majority of mytosis okay. patients. Um, the next question you get from the patients when you have that nice response is, can well, ca- can I walk around doing this all day? <laughs> and, and the answer to that is it does lose its effect over time, oh. and it only lasts for maybe half an hour tops. So basically people would have to walk around with a dilated eye, putting a drop in every half an hour. But even at 10%? But even, even, well, and, and they could, it's, uh, but in doing, when you go up to 10%, we start having to pay more attention to the actual systemic reactions to those things with heart rate and other stuff that goes into it. But it's a very good test. It's a nice trick to do in the office. It's a very good trick to use. And it's, and it's actually really illustrative to me of how, um, I'm going to approach those, uh, patient surgically Um, because there are a a number of different approaches that we use for tightening up the muscles of the eyelids and depending on how you respond to that testing determines in my hands at least how I uh, how I approach well, maybe you can go through some of that before we sure, badge you with other questions no, please. here. Of course. Um, there, are the, there are multiple ways of doing blepharotosis surgery. Uh, blepharoplasty surgery, although there are subtle differences uh, in my hands at least, uh, the majority of the way we do those surgeries is pretty similar. Um, we remove the excessive skin, sew people back together with either mm-hmm. uh, permanent sutures that we take out, to, out after about a week's time or dissolving stitches that will dissolve by themselves in about a week's time. But that's different from the blepharotosis surgeries. Um, in my hands, I do a, a number of, of different approaches to those things. If the levator muscle in the eyelid works appropriately, has a good uh, amount of strength, then you can usually get away with doing either an external approach to those surgeries or the internal approach, which is the mullerectomy procedure. The external approach is actually through the same incision that we use for the blepharoplasties in my hands. Uh, make an incision through the outside of the eyelid, find the uh, relaxed or loosened up levator muscle, and then reattach it to the tarsal plate where, it, where it's functioning. So it's loosened up. It's a, it's is that what you up. call it? Dehiscence? Yes. It's dehiscence or aponeurotic ptosis from the I levator aponeurosis. Um, that muscle, what I, how I describe it to patients is there's a muscle in your eyelids and your eye socket called that levator muscle, and it works like a garage door opener. So oh, it, okay. actually, it actually comes from the back of the eye socket, it arches forward and connects into the gristly stuff in our lids, which is the tarsus. And the way that works, that muscle works, is by lifting things up and back. And what happens in the majority of folks um, when they have a aponeurotic or, or uh, a, a ptosis related to age or maturity, right. um, those tissues uh, have loosened up. And so the way we fix that is by retightening it and putting it back where it's supposed to be. For those patients, I actually have them awake in the operating room and I'm actually having them open and close their eyes a number of times so I can make sure that I line things up. It's not you, painful for patients. They're nice and comfortable, but we have them open and close so we can get things lined up appropriately. How do you know much... How- to cut away. Exactly. So for those patients, I'm actually not removing any tissue of the muscle. So we're actually just tightening it. So I, I put sutures in a way that I can adjust them in the operating room. And so um, I, I tie them temporarily. And then as they open and close their eyes, I tighten or loosen the sutures appropriately until we get them in the good position for things. Um, How do you kind of re- relax patients during that operation it is. so they're not squirming around? It is. And... That's a great question. So we do it under monitored anesthesia care, which means when a patient comes to the operating room, they have an IV that's already started by the nursing team. And then we give them just a little bit of relaxation medicine while we put the numbing medicine in. So we use lidocaine, similar to how what you right. get the dentist, um, or, or some combination of that with other uh, longer-acting agents such as bupivacaine. Um, but we, we inject a, a small amount, not so much that it actually numbs up the muscle that we're trying to fix, but will numb up the pain fibers in the eyelids. And then as they start to wake up during the procedure, the hope is that I've put some sutures in before they're really 
totally aware of everything that's happening. Um, patients usually describe it to me as, as feeling like they, they have some tightness or some pulling, but not any pain during the procedure. Um, and if there's a painful part, it's very brief. Um, it's a fleeting moment where we're just attaching some of the stitches. Um, and you're exactly right. Um, I joke with the anesthesia staff and the nursing staff that we do a lot of talkesthesia. We do a lot of, of uh, relaxing patients and talking about their hobbies and their grandchildren and other things to try to get them to relax and not concentrate on the fact that we're working on their eyelids the whole time. Um, but by doing that surgery, it's a good approach to, to lift the eyelids in the appropriate position. That is contrasted with the internal approach to ptosis surgery. Um, the internal approach that was popularized by Dr. Alan Putterman um, is an approach where we're tightening the levator and the Mueller's muscle to the inside of the eyelid. So we avert the eyelid and then uh, using the response to phenylephrine in the office or responses to other things, we figure out how much of the tissue to placate and remove, and we get a good um, amount of lift from doing surgery that way. In my hands, if people that are exceptionally droopy, you can't get quite enough lift from the internal approach to surgery. So usually I do that from the external. But in my hands, the internal approach is quicker in the operating room. And, and speed matters, but more importantly for the patient, it means that they're in and the out, out of the operating room more quickly, which makes them uh, feel more comfortable. So I use both of those surgeries uh, depending on how the patient responds to things and, and, and what our goals are for surgery. Um, the other approaches that we use for surgery is if the muscle doesn't work at all, and we usually see that in pediatric ptosis cases or in people who have a actual problem with the muscles themselves in adults, um, you can't use that levator muscle as well. And so we either have to really cut out tissue in regards to the question like we had earlier, or more importantly, we have to bypass that muscle and actually attach the eyelid up to the forehead tissues and use the frontalis muscle of the forehead and the eyebrows oh, to actually use that to lift the eyelid tissues up out of the way. I don't do that surgery as often because that type of surgery is not as common, especially in my practice, but it's also very powerful and it's very rewarding to have some of those patients that have had other types of surgery that have not been successful that you can fix by uh, basically using, we call a frontalis sling surgery, where we attach that eyelid up to the forehead tissues to get those tissues lifted up out of the way. So, so on a third nerve palsy or something, would you... What would you do on that? It, it depends on, it, it. for me, how I determine what kind of surgery we do all comes down to how uh, much that uh, levator muscle functions. Um, so and then you have to match it up to the other eye. You do well. A lot of people, right. I really get a good outcome, but it doesn't look equal. It, absolutely. And that's a tough thing, especially um, most ptosis is bilateral but asymmetric, um, meaning that most of people who have droopiness on one side will have it on the other, but it's very rarely is it the exact same amount of droopiness. Um, and there are some people who have very good muscle function, levator function on one side and very poor on the other side. And it is very difficult to get those people to be balanced between the two sides. Right. It's very, it can be difficult. You but just do one eye at a time? No, usually it depends. Depends. Uh, depends on how droopy things are. Depends on what our goals are from surgery. Um, but for most of those patients that have bilateral droopy lids, we do surgery on both eyes during the same procedures. Are there any risk factors with, you know, fixing a droopy eyelid that patients should be aware of? Absol absolutely. Um, as with any surgery, I, what, I, what I go with, through with folks is the, the normal risk is we need surgery procedure are bleeding and bruising. Um, the majority of the patients that I work with uh, are on some sort of blood thinner these days, and so we try to talk to their medical team to have them off those blood thinners if it's a safe and appropriate. Small chance of infection, small chance of scar tissue. For this type of eyelid surgery, the most difficult thing to get is perfect symmetry between the two sides. So I tell patients that no one's eyelids or face are perfectly symmetric between the two sides before surgery. Very rarely are they perfectly symmetric after surgery, but the goal is to make them as symmetric as we can. Um, and our 
number one goal from lifting up eyelids is to improve vision under most circumstances. Right. Um, and so explain to patients that if we can make them see better and get things pretty darn close, then, then we're going to be pretty happy with how the outcome is. But even in my hands, um, once or twice a year, someone's eyelids will be too open or too closed, and we have to come back and revise things. So I always right. t- talk to patients about that, that that's, that's part of the deal. Um, and, and the main reason for that is I can work on the eyelids themselves. That's what I work on. That's what I do surgery on. But that doesn't mean that I make the nerves work any differently. Right. doesn't mean I make the brain work any differently. doesn't mean I make the eyebrows work any differently from those types of procedures. And so I'm working on a very small piece of a much larger puzzle. And sometimes the outcome is not exactly what we expect from those things. So, so what's the difference in a dermatochelasis versus a blepharochelasis? Mm-hmm. Um, dermato- dermatochelasis is the excessive skin, redundant skin that we see uh, in most folks as the tissues age, that tissue stretches in a, in a predictable pattern. Um, blepharochelasis um, is similar, but usually the those patients have some other associated disease or symptoms that causes uh, recurrent bounce of, of swelling of the tissues. So it's inflating and deflating, inflating and deflating oh, okay. those tissues over a long period of time. So those tissues in blepharochalasis patients tend to be very thin skin, and they have a lot of swelling that are underneath the, the skin tissues most of the time. So although the surgical approach is the same for those patients, or similar, it's not the same, it's similar, blepharochalasis patients very frequently will have recurrence of their symptoms afterwards. So sometimes it's, it's uh, we'll take some tissue away, they're great for a little while, but we can't necessarily fix the underlying reason why they're still having that stretching of tissues. So it may, it may recur more quickly in those patients than it does in others. Um, and I do have to look and try to figure out if there's some other systemic problem for why those tissues are happening, why that stretching is happening. Sometimes we find it, sometimes we don't. Um, but I just warn those patients that the long-term outcome of that may not be as um, predictable as per- someone who has classic dermatochelasis. So a lot of people don't have ptosis, but their skin is hanging down. Yes. And they think I got a droopy lid, and I say, no, yep. I'm pulling up your skin. Your, yep. your skin's hanging down. Absolutely. And um, But it may be from their brow. It, it can be from their brow. Their brow ptosis. It can be from brow ptosis, absolutely. Gravity affects everything. Everything starts higher and ends up a little bit lower over time. Oh, there you go. And yeah. foreheads fall, eyebrows fall. Uh, men tend to have a little lower eyebrows than women do to start with. So a little bit of dr- descent of brows in men can be very si- visually significant. Um, skin can stretch. Muscles can droop. Um, there's the entity that we call pseudotosis of the eyelids, which is when there's so much skin hanging over the edge of things, it actually weighs down, physically right. weighs down the oh, muscles yeah. of things. And it is sometimes hard to predict, especially in people with an, an excessive amount of eyelid skin. Um, sometimes just removing that skin works plenty to put the eyelid margin, that ptosis back right. where it's supposed to be. Um, the thing I did not mention earlier was very commonly these things are seen in tandem with one another. Uh, extra skin and droopy muscles are very commonly seen in the same patient. So they're not in isolation for a lot of folks. So we do have to address both of those things uh, when it's appropriate to try to put the, the eyelids in a better position. So what about those people that have elderly people with really thin skin? Mm-hmm. You know, um, are you afraid it's just too paper thin or is there a limit as to someone said, no, this person's 93 and I ha- I know, haven't, they just have such yeah. loose, thin skin. It's a great question. Do things um, with them. I don't, um, usually the patients who have the thinnest skin are, are unfortunately patients who have had systemic medication, steroids, and other things that tends to thin your skin. Even in those patients, um, the eyelid skin is so thin that it's very for- forgiving in a way that you typically heals very well. Okay. Um, the, uh, so <clears throat> the, the thinness of the skin is not something that is a, a negative. In fact, it's a positive in a lot of cases because the thinner the skin means the scar tissue heals in a little bit more uh, appropriately. I do sometimes uh, change how long I leave sutures in folks. Um, if I think that their their skin needs a little extra help before we uh, to, to heal, then we can leave those stitches in for a little bit longer after the surgeries. Um, 
But uh, I mean, I, I joked to the patient this week. I've, my my record is a 104 year old. I worked on a 104 year old, and and that same week I worked on a six week old. And oh, so wow. that's part of the fun of what I do is that breadth of, of patients. And and I have a lot of patients that come in and say, I think I'm too old for this kind of procedure. And and I say, well. Um, the, the age itself does not limit someone's uh, medical treatments. Other medical problems do. But I have plenty of healthy 95-year-olds that could run circles around 40- and 50-year-olds that I see. And if you have a medical problem and I can fix it, age should not be something that should uh, uh, keep us from doing those things. So the 104-year-old so, say, I just want to look like I'm 90? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It, was a, it, was an in, it was an entropian um, oh, in a patient yes. with, the, with the lower eyelid rolling in with the lashes up against right. the, the eyeball. Very uncomfortable. Um, the patient walked in with a piece of tape on their cheek holding the eyelid down um, diagnosed from across the room when I walk in and uh, the family and the patient said that they didn't want to have to deal with that anymore and uh, we did a 20-minute procedure and rotated the eyelid into a better better spot for them and made them more comfortable kept those eyelashes uh, so we see uh, all sorts of different Asians I had a person who was a Hmong the other day I think you know you got three lashes that are rubbing on your eye and it never seems to be bothering them Mm -hmm. is there some reason they tolerate that or should I be epilating those uh, frequently, or it, just leave them alone. It really depends on the patient. Um, uh, some patients are incredibly bothered by any. I mean, you see with the dry eye patients, right. some patients can have you know a, a, a Sahara desert of an eye and it doesn't bother them at all. And some people yes. have moderately dry eyes and it drives them crazy. I think it's the same thing with the eyelashes. It, it, some people will come in and they've always had eyelashes rubbing on the surface of their eyes and it doesn't bother them very, very much. And somebody can have one and they come and see you every six weeks because they want to get to work on it. Um, certain ethnicities, as you alluded to, have have different makeup of how the anatomy in their eyelids, which can sometimes cause the eyelashes to roll in, in different spots and cause problems with things. Um, and, and that can be seen in all ages. I mean, it can be seen in newborns, it can be seen in, in adolescents and in, in adults and elderly folks. Um, but uh, eyelashes are, are a uh, frustrating part of the practice because there's not one absolutely perfect treatment for getting rid of some of those eyelashes. Um, so there's surgical approaches to rotate uh, the eyelid margins into the more appropriate place to get those eyelashes out of the way. Obviously, simple epilation, you can pull them out. Um, and then there's lots of different treatments to try to eradicate eyelashes. Um, you can burn them, you can freeze them, you can electric- electrocute them, lasers, radio frequency. All those things work about the same, and none of them work great. Oh, I see. Um, so would that be an Asian eyelid surgery, or what do they call it, double? Uh, so so a- Asian eyelid surgery is, is uh, the classic, de- de- you know, Asian eyelid surgery is, is trying to uh, change or, or modify the the crease that's in the Asian eyelid. Okay. Um, the Asian eyelid classically, although th- there's a wide variety in the eyelid creases in Asian population, um, the classic um, uh, the textbook uh, Asian eyelid has a lower connection between the orbital septal tissues and the tarsal plate or the levator aponeurosis, which causes the the preaponeurotic fat in the eyelid, the the fatty tissues that are in the eye socket, to um, be lower in the eyelid itself. So it's a more full eyelid. Um, And uh, depending on... um, where you are in Asia or where your where your descendants are from in from Asia, um, there's a lot of variety in the eyelid position of things. But Asian um, or double eyelid uh, surgery is is basically trying to reform an eyelid crease into the position where patients want it. And that's one of the surgeries that I find is is very helpful for patients to have an expectation of where they want things to be. 
um, meaning that I have them come in with pictures or family members or even, I don't like to compare to celebrities, but patients come in and say, I want an eyelid that looks something along these lines because um, everybody has different thoughts on where they want those eyelids to be. And, and I had a, a, a surgery on a, on a Japanese gentleman this week, and he said, I don't want to have Caucasian eyelids when we're done. And so they're ve- people are very conscious of these things, right. um, and we want <clears throat> to um, manage expectations to keep them appropriate, to make them look a, like, a, again, a refreshed version of themselves, right. not look like something drastically different from where they have been. Yeah. I have a question about <clears throat> more on the aesthetics line. So Please. as people age, they get bags under their eyes. Yes. And I just had a lady today, and we were trying on glasses, and she says, no, I want a darker frame, full frame, because I want to hide my bags. Yes. And it's kind of sad to hear that. It is. Because you would hope, you know, it's she's sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. So what can people do to, you know, decrease this look? Absolutely. Um, the the I'm going to give you a long answer to that question. And what causes uh, absolutely. the bags? And bags that, that's that's where it's going. Right? Absolutely. Best tunes. Um, yeah. So the the approach I take for upper eyelid blepharoplasty surgery, either functional or cosmetic, is is similar. It's not exactly the same, but the gist of it is we're just trying to remove tissue, uh, either skin or fat, and put things in an appropriate position. The lower eyelid bags are more complicated because it's not caused by one or two things. It's caused by a whole, a whole host of things that happen to our bodies as we mature. Um, yes, there's excessive skin that that the lower eyelid skin stretches. Um, and the, the classic bag of the lower eyelid is actually a, a um, creation of the weakening of the, of the connective tissue in the eyelids called the septal tissue that sort of holds everything where it's supposed to be. As those tissues also loosen up over time, the natural fatty pockets that we have in our eye socket tend to come forward. That's not it, though. You also have descent of your cheek over time. So the cheeks, just like eyebrows and eyelids, tend to descend over time. And as cheeks fall, it can make that difference between the eyelids and the cheeks more apparent. And there's a ligament structure that comes from the, from the bones of the face into the lower eyelid that causes that tear trough. Um, and, and also, people have a bony remodeling of their face over time. So they actually lose some bony structures in their cheeks. The reason I'm saying all these things is to tell you it's not one thing that we can yeah. do to make eyelids more appropriate. Um, you know, it, it, there are surgeries that I do, uh, lower eyelid blepharoplasty surgeries, where it's some combination of trying to return those, those tissues into a normal anatomic position. But it's not just cutting out and sewing you back together. It's, it's more involved than that because you have to work on the cheeks. You've got to work on the fatty tissues. You've got to work on the tear troughs themselves. And so that surgery actually takes a, a fair amount longer on the lower eyelids than it does in other places. Um, and it's not just about moving and redraping tissues, it's also a volume issue, like I mentioned before. Um, And so uh, uh, surgical procedures can be done to actually borrow fatty tissue from other parts of the body, from liposuction and other things, and inject those into the lower eyelids to fill that volume and space. Um, and so it's becoming more common with, with lots of different areas around the body with, with, with reconstructive and plastic surgery, uh, but it's, a, it's becoming more common in the lower eyelids because we can restore volume that's, that's naturally from your own body with those kind of things. So that's better than using a Restylane or a Juvederm or... Not Obama better, or just different. Different? Different. Okay. Um, the, the, the cost is different. Um, the, the, um, there are a number of fillers on the market these days, um, and the, the high, high hyaluronic acid fillers, which is the one right. you're referring, referring to, are all based on a similar molecule, but they have different ways that they make them. The different companies and the different um, formulations of things have different properties of, of the high hyaluronic acid. Some are thicker more like putty. Some are thinner. And so depending on the, um, the way that the companies manufacture these, they are better for, for certain parts of the face, for lips, for eyelids, for, um, for uh, the marionette lines. There's various parts of the face where these fillers can be used. In the lower eyelids, a lot of times what we can do with fillers is make those that uh, the 
difference between the lower eyelids and the cheeks less noticeable. So you can't fix skin with filler. You can't fix the cheeks with filler, but you're trying to fill in that deficit, that gap between the lower eyelids and the cheeks with fillers. So it's a very good tool. It's not as powerful as surgery, but fillers, you come into my office, we talk about it, we put some numbing cream on, and 30 minutes later, we're done. A little bit of bruising and swelling and a little bit for, for most folks, um, but it's it's easier and more affordable than doing surgical procedures. It's injection with a needle? It's injection with a needle. And it's a or, fine needle. It's a fine needle, or actually, what I use is a cannula. Um, one of the complications that can happen from filler uh, injections is is you can actually cause some problems with some of the blood vessels in the face and other areas, which can be uh, a scary thing when you're trying to make somebody look better and have some of these complications. I feel more comfortable actually using a, I use a needle to make a hole, basically, and then I use a cannula which has a blunt tip to it, so it's not sharp on the end, and I'm injecting through that cannula. I feel safer. Everybody has different preferences. I feel safer using a cannula uh, because there's less in my hands. There's less chance of, of of causing trouble with some of those blood vessels. But yes, we do it in the office. Um, it's most fillers these days, depending on the part of the face and, the, and what substance you're using, have a lifetime of about six months to a year. So it's not a permanent fix. Um, and so some patients- If you don't like it, if you don't um, like it, wait six months. If you don't like it, wait six months. Um, and But the what I tell folks is that fillers are simpler to do in the office. They're more affordable if you're planning on not doing it forever. Um, but uh, they are not as profound. The, the effect that you get from a filler is not as, as profound as you would from a surgical procedure. Um, but I, I have that discussion with patients uh, frequently about, about the different options that they can have. Yeah. So let's move into, I would say, more of the dry eye part. Sure. So we, we see a lot of Shalazians. Uh, sometimes they come in one right after another in the office, and we've seen some pretty big ones lately, Dr. Brill. So tell us about your experience with that and... And you know, also how you handle that, Dr. Chapel. Absolutely. So I, I'm sort of the, uh, I feel like I'm sort of on the end of the spectrum of seeing people with these acute inflammatory conditions on their eyelids and their chalasia. I, I do see some folks that are sort of early in their process with blepharitis and little um, blockages of things, but most of the time, by the time they get to me, they're things that need to be worked on more significantly. Um, and, um, you know, how do the, we tell if they're insisted already? Does that, that take a certain time, or can you get a cyst around it pretty quick? You, it depends on the patient. Uh, the, the natural history of these things, as you know, is they typically start with one or two clogged meibomian glands. Very rarely is it an infectious process that causes the problem. It's the inflammatory process of the body reacting to these clogged meibomian glands. Um, and as those glands get clogged up, the body says, let's try to get rid of this stuff. And if it can't, it sort of walls it off and, and forms a little cyst. Right. Um, sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes it happens over a long period of time. The hope is we can get to the treating it before it turns into that little cyst. Not that we can't remove it when it when it turns into right. that, um, and and uh, it's not actually a classic cyst, but it's it's a walled off structure right. where where those things can't go anywhere. Um, but uh, it's a very common thing we see in the practice, and and as as all optometrists and ophthalmologists do, um, there are lots of different treatment options. By the time they get to me, um, more doctors are doing injections for these things with with some anti-inflammatory um, uh, medications, which can be useful, especially in refractory sort of small um, inflammatory nodules. But the stuff is stuck in there, so you know my classic way of doing of getting rid of these things is just to numb up the patient and and try to open things up and ha have the drain. 
um, a trick that I learned a couple years ago when I'm when I'm opening things, these things and draining them is also once they're numbed up, really squeeze the heck out of those meibomian glands while we're doing it. Because if we make an incision through the inside of the eyelid where I try to make the incision for all these, um, that's one outlet for that inflammatory material. Right. But we also want it to be opening through the natural opening of the meibomian right. gland orifice. And so if the more openings we have, the better chance of those things not coming back. And even after I drain them, I, I warn those patients that you're set up to having more of these things. So they've got to be really good with their eyelid hygiene. They've got to, you know, maintain good... Uh, good uh, relationships with their with their physicians so they can make sure these things don't come back and cause them more trouble. Because a, a lot of times I'll see patients who have had something drained, it comes back, and I say, well, what did you do after they drained it? And they said, well, nothing. I didn't do anything else. I'm done with it. And it's an ongoing issue that we have to coach p- patients into uh, continuing treatment for themselves. Yeah, it's interesting because I will see evidence of it when we're doing mybography. Mm-hmm. I'll see the drop out of the glands, and I'll look at their lid margin, and it's scalloped. And I'm right. thinking, you've had... Uh, Hordeolum before, you had mm-hmm. a schlesium before. No, mm-hmm. no, I never did. And I'm thinking, no, I know you did. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we can map it out and show them. And a lot of them are in denial that they have mm-hmm. um, meibomian gland dysfunction and, right. and they, they're going to continue having problems. Right. So, um, but they're in denial. We call it uh, non-obvious. We got NOMGD, non-obvious MGD. <laughs> right, right. And, um, Right. Some of them have stubs, just stubs left for their mm-hmm. glands, uh, but they yep. still won't do anything in terms of advanced right. treatment. So, right. and another interesting part of that too is um, part of the part of the issues of these things are also related to how the eyelids function. We talked about the loosening of the up, of the upper eyelids; those lower eyelids loosen up too. Right. Um, and it's something I paid more attention to in the last few years of my practice is paying attention to how people blink, right. how people open and close their eyes, how much they can actually squeeze those upper and lower eyelids against each other. Because if you have eyelids that aren't functioning very well, they're not the there's no apposition between those upper and lower lids. There's no um, way for those meibomian glands to be squeezed appropriately, um, naturally. And yeah, so, so those, it's fun to show those yeah. people videos of their blinks absolutely and or the lack of blink and we quantify it and give them blink instructions right uh and and a lot of people you know if they're if they sense the problem they they will end up doing that and um either whether we're doing ipl on them or lipoflow i kind of call it the one-two punch you know we got to get rid of the obstruction and we got to get rid of the inflammation and 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 i think uh the patients that do that we don't see them back again especially if they're doing a uh lid hygiene, right. uh, continuous lid hygiene, some lid right. heating, some ongoing just good maintenance. Absolutely. So I tell them it's like brushing and flossing. You've got a exactly. chronic progressive condition, yep. and it needs some maintenance. Absolutely. So typically they get lazy over time. They do. They do. Um, you don't. You don't brush don't your teeth. I had an eight-year-old in my office who I had a had a, a large chalazin a few years ago, um, and uh, I coached him on doing eyelid hygiene. And over a month or two time, he was able to open the chalazin right. naturally and let it yeah. drain. And he came in and he said, "It's just like brushing my teeth. I brush my teeth all the time to prevent cavities. There you go. I'm going to clean my eyelids so I don't have to do this anymore." And I said, "That is profound, eight-year-old. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to share that's that good. with people. Isn't it yeah, great? I mean, it's good. it's really great when and people some can of the people come up with that we've got to do uh, microblepher exfoliation, blefex." Right. Uh, just put them on a regular program, um, you know. So it's a variety of different things. And um, and and uh, how about Demodex? You see a lot of Demodex. I know if you look at the statistics, they say like seventy uh, percent of the people over sixty right. have a Demodex. Right. Now you've got kind of a. a, a a prominent brow mm-hmm. and I think a hooded lid there. Mm-hmm. And I see it on those people that, you know, where their lid margins are hooded and mm-hmm. it seems like they just don't get 
it clean in there, right. but it, right. what do you tell, are you noticing the same thing? Uh, yeah, we see Demodex in a lot of folks. The interesting thing about Demodex is, like you said, it's in the vast majority of the population, but not everybody has the same reaction to the Demodex being right. there. So it's whatever, for whatever reason, your body is having an inflammatory reaction to the secretions or w- whatever it is with the Demodex being there. Um, and so maintaining good eyelid hygiene is the most important part for those folks. Um, is we know that it's associated with rosacea. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, literature says 20% of rosacea starts on the lid. Mm-hmm. And so we're, instead of um, most ophthalmologists, optometrists want to get to the inside of the eye as fast as right. they can. Right. They don't really look at the lids right. too much Absolutely. or spend much time actually, you know, having people look down and looking at the at the lid margin, right. looking at the at the um, lash follicles right. and actually looking for it. I think that's why we're not finding it, but when you look for it, it it's there. It is, so, it is. And it's ni- it is nice to clean it up. Mm-hmm. Um, be surprised how many people say they have no symptoms, but you sit there watching them rub their eyes continuously. Right. right. And, and, and they don't understand that bringing bacteria to the area. And they don't have a problem because this is the new normal for them. Right. This is how it is. Right. They've never known anything they better. Differ, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, and right. they have uh, uh, inferior corneal SPK, so mm-hmm. they consider this is how I this is how my life is. Right, absolutely, and they, and and once you can fix those things, either with conservative therapies or or um, even uh, me when I do lower eyelid ectropion surgeries or lateral tarsal okay. strip surgeries to tighten things up, even doing that can can help. Uh, make those eyelids function a lot better, and those are some of the happiest patients because they didn't realize how much those things were bothering them before you before you work on them and fix them. So, no, I like to measure lid tension, but mm-hmm. is there an actual official way to? Uh, if I pull that lower lid away, I want to see it snap back. Mm-hmm. Of course, in older people, it doesn't really snap back as well. But I was wondering, do we have a some quantification of that? There are quantifications for that. Um, I've never found them to be very useful. Okay. Um, and it's it's sometimes that you know people talk about one plus two plus three plus right. four plus. In my hands, what I do is I have a mirror. I show a patient what we're looking at. I pull their lower eyelid down and I watch how slowly that starts right. to come back before their eyes. And then by just putting your finger in the outside corner and showing them how we're going to tighten things, we can show them how much more efficient that's going to be. So for me, I just sort of grade it as mild, moderate, severe. Okay. Um, but for for studies and those kind of things, they do have some actual classifications of those things. How clinically useful they are is, is not, in my hands at least, is not that useful. Um, but uh, you know, you don't have to have a frank ectropion with the eyelid right. edge hanging over the you know the eyelashes hanging down to their chin for people to have a benefit from tightening up the eyelids into a more appropriate mm-hmm. position. So, and that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It is. So. It's a straightforward outpatient procedure. It takes about half an hour. Um, and all these surgeries we're talking about, uh, people are usually bruised and swollen for about a week to 10 days. I usually tell them about two-week time frame on when they can sort of get back to their normal activities. Um, it depends on, obviously, how much we're doing and, and sort of the aspects of what we're doing. Um, but unlike some other cataract mm-hmm. surgeries or other eye surgeries, people will know when they look at you that something has been done, at least for the first couple of weeks, because of the amount of bruising or swelling. So, Do you have – I've seen some – different types of uh, tapes, mm-hmm. you know, that are advertised mm-hmm. for to tighten up someone's lid mm-hmm. or make it look a little bit better. What's mm-hmm. your thoughts on those? Uh, they're great. Um, if you think of them as a cosmetic, they're right. very good. Um, they're not something that's going to uh, make anything better permanently, um, but they have some tapes and some cosmetics these days that can work sort of as temporary, right. you know, sort of rubbery tapes that can work really great. And the, and the effects and the, the look of that is very powerful. Um, but as, if you think of it as a cosmetic, so it's not going to change things dramatically over, over, over time, but over the short term, um, if you've got a hot date, put that stuff on, that's great. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Chapel, I think one of the great things about, uh, being an eye doctor is that we're an entry point into the whole medical system. Absolutely. And we're able to look at people's blood pressure, mm-hmm. which, um, a lot of people don't even monitor. 
But, you know, if they come in because they can't see well, we're going to look at their blood pressure. And one of the other things is skin. Mm -hmm. So, um, and skin cancer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we can't really look at our own eyelids to see if we have any spots or bumps or discoloring. So tell us about, you know, what we can do to prevent uh, cancer and detect it. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite parts about being an oculoplastic surgeon is the collegiality I have with other medical specialties. Sometimes in the eye world, we're separated from skin doctors and neurologists and ENT doctors and even medicine doctors because we're on, in our own little world. And I really like oculoplastics because I get to share a lot of patients and, and discussions with, with colleagues in other medical fields. And I, I work a lot with dermatologists um, and uh, skin cancer doctors, Mohs surgeons, M-O-H-S, right. Mohs yes. surgeons who remove skin cancers. A lot of times if those things are, are around the eyelids, then I work closely with them for them to remove skin cancers and then I will do reconstructions and put things back together. Um, and it's a very common issue that we see. Um, uh, facial skin cancer is on the rise. Eyelid skin cancer is on the rise. Um, and a lot of time, the, the good thing is I think people are more aware of it than they used to be. Um, I think p- more people are wearing sunscreens with their natural uh, cosmetics or moisturizers have SPF in them to sort of help prevent these things. Uh, but it's still a very common problem that I see. And there's still people who neglect these things for a long time before they come in. And it's a much bigger deal. Um, and, but it's, it's nice to have colleagues in other medical fields that we can overlap and share these patients with because we can really help take care of folks. Um, it is hard sometimes in the, in, the, in the setting when you see something in the office to know if it's something that you have to be worried about or not worried about. You know, sometimes it's easy to tell if it's something is a skin cancer or not. Sometimes it's not easy to tell. Right. So that's why it's nice. Even to, for the trained eye. Even for the trained eye. Absolutely. You've got to have a lab on it. Or Absolutely. Or so so um, in dermatology and ophthalmology and oculoplastics, there's an outreach program to sort of say if there's something that's growing and different, go see your doctor. It doesn't mean it has to be something bad, but we, we want to pay attention to these things before they become a problem for you. Because a lot of them, you could take them out for the Elman device or right. and uh, pretty simple. Right. It, it, it can be simple. And it and um, sometimes little skin cancers have big roots that, right. that become a bigger issue, which is why it's, I, I in my hands, I, I help, I get the help from most surgeons because they can look at the, the surgical margins or the, excuse me, the pathologic margins of these things to make sure there's no residual skin cancers. Um, but you, that can be done with frozen sex. And, and other things too, but I prefer to use most surgeons because um, I think it's a good um, a good uh, way for pa- it's the best way for patient care. I, if I had a skin cancer, I'd want to go to the specialist who takes care of those mm-hmm. things. Do you go to and a dermatopathologist? Or luckily, there are there are dermatopathologists who work very closely with the most surgeons and dermatologists, especially for some of the uncommon tumors. I had one this week. It was an un- uncommon type of eyelid uh, skin cancer, um, and I worked with a colleague who has a dermato- dermatopathologist to look at these things and make sure that we could eliminate the whole cancer. And I do a lot of eyelid reconstructions for these kind of things, right. um, and. We probably should mention that some of those recurrent uh, chalazia, we should be looking at medullary gland tumors. A- so. Absolutely. If, if something comes back and it's not acting the way it's supposed to, especially if it's asymmetric, if you see right. a lot of this on one side and nothing on the other, have a high suspicion to, um, to figure out what else is going on with that. Um, but... Uh, um, uh, the, it's very common to see these skin cancers, at least in my hands, and, and unlike other parts of the body um, where the function of it is not as important as how things look, the eyelids, if I make you a beautiful eyelid from a reconstruction and it doesn't open and close, I haven't done you very much good. Right. So I tell p- folks that our number one goal when we're removing the skin cancers from the eyelids is number one, to remove the cancer. Um, if we haven't removed the cancer, we haven't done you any good. Number two is making functional eyelids. I mean, a functional eyelid open and closes and protects it. Number three, we want it to look great. Usually we get all three of those things, but if we have to have one that's not at the top of our list, um, if I make you an ugly eyelid that works great and you're happy with me when I'm done, then that's a, that's, I can sleep well at night. Um, but hopefully we can get all those things accomplished when we, when we reconstruct folks. Now, so. where do you, um, 
you and the anterior segment surgeons, uh, do you handle uh, things like conjunctival chalasis at all, or um, uh, cysts of the conch? Mm -hmm. Really, or is that, or is that, are you are you getting out of your lane and saying, hey, Kate, uh, anterior segments, you know, I don't want to step on you, but it really depends on where you are and, and what kind of practice you're in. I, um, I work with some very very good anterior segment surgeons, and we overlap with some of these things, but um, there is a lot of overlap. So there's not a right or wrong way to do that. It's it's what what you feel comfortable in your hands handling uh, doing. Um, and so I've, I've done conjunctival surgeries and conjunctival cholesterol surgeries and those kind of things. I work with some very good colleagues that are very comfortable doing those things too, which is nice. Well, I found um, what's interesting, we're trying uh, Lumifion, mm -hmm. some of those CCH patients, and, and it's stretching out enough so that their tear function is better. Hmm. So uh, I, I think it's off-label to do that, but it's, since it's over-the-counter, I don't mm -hmm. know if there's an off-label or on-label. Yeah. But, it's, 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 but it is kind of fun to watch it stretch yeah, out a little yeah. bit, stretch the carpet out. Mm -hmm. So now somebody that's got just a persistent, uh, like a bleb type of cyst, you know, it's a clear mm -hmm. um, lymphactasia. Mm -hmm. What do you, ha how do you handle them? I know if you pop them, they'll just come right back. You're right. You pop them and come right back. And, and usually my hand, <laughs> in my hands, usually what I do is I pop them. If they come to see me, I pop them and say, it's going to come back, but at least you won't have this irritating you for a little while. There's more okay. involved things that we can do. Um, you, in my hands, at least, once I've seen those things come back and become a bigger deal, I do refer to my anterior segment colleagues okay. to, to see those things. And they excise it? And they excise it uh, under certain circumstances. Dep it depends on how extensive it is, how, how much of a problem it is. Excision is is uh, is definitely a possibility. Um, it just depends on how symptomatic it is. You, you've seen patients with crazy amounts, oh, of, yeah. uh, and then it doesn't bother them at all. And then you have some patients who have one little tiny cyst, and it drives them crazy. And so trying to figure out uh, in that which, which patients can be helped appropriately is, is the, the art of medicine when we do these things so <clears throat> so dr. Chapel the last thing I want to get into is kind of the business side of, sure. of eye care um, you're new to the Kansas City area I am. and you've really worked um, from West Coast to the Midwest so mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen the way uh, different business differs across the country mm -hmm. and I think as competition gets big and people are just consult Dr. Google for everything. Yes. Um, optometry and ophthalmology need to learn how to work better together. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different models out there. We have private equity models. We mm -hmm. have MD, OD practices. We have just MD. We have OD. So mm -hmm. how do we all kind of form a better bond together, actually communicate, mm -hmm. and not just fax, you know, messages to each other that's right. so impersonal? Because right. I think it is important that we have that bond and, right. you know, take each other serious. Right. Uh, the, the, it all, for me, it all comes down to patient care. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, I think the best way to have great patient care is with communication between the various doctors and the teams. Um, there are lots of different models for how ophthalmology and optometry can work together. Um, I grew up in an ophthalmology household, um, but, but, uh, but I've seen lots of different models and how these things work throughout the country, academic models, private practice models. Um, and the ones that are most successful as far as patient care goes, are the ones where there's not a um, animosity between different folks. There's it's it's a collegial um, uh, uh, relationship between everybody in the patient care team. There's people who I do oculoplastics. That doesn't mean that I can't look at the rest of the eyeball, but there's people that do that all the time that that concentrate on those things. Um, I concentrate on oculoplastics, and and that's the patients that I've decided I want to take care of the most, and that's what I want to concentrate on. But um, I rely on uh, good referrals from ophthalmologists and optometrists and other specialties, like I mentioned, to, to have patients come and see me. 
it's interesting in oculoplastics, there's still a lot of physicians that know that I'm an oculoplastic surgeon and I've known them for years. I went to medical school with them. They have no idea what I do um, because it's, we're on our own little end of the medical spectrum. And so part of the, my job is to sort of educate people about what we do, um, even in optometry and ophthalmology practices, say, you know, here's, here's what oculoplastics does. Here, here's how I can help patients with the problems that they right. have. Um, and so it, for me, it all comes down to patient care. And so um, some of the newer business models, some of the private equity uh, acquisitions and those kind of things, I, th- there are good and pros and cons to all those things. Unfortunately, some of those don't always have the patient's care as the number one goal. Um, and yes, we're all in business. We all want to, you know, do well, but but that shouldn't be at the expense of patient care. That shouldn't be expensive taking care of, of everybody that comes through our door as if they were our family members. And that's, and that's really what I strive to do. So, Well, I've got a couple more clinical questions, Please. if you don't mind. Please. So we did, really didn't talk about uh, what you do for, for thyroid patients. Yes. Maybe we can get into that a little bit, and uh, got a couple more after that. So sure. let's talk about the thyroid patient because I think Synthroid. I mean, it's one of the most common medicines. It and is. We, if we talk to people, they'll say, "I'm not on any medicine," and then later on, "Yeah, I'm on the thyroid medicine," because yep. we're noticing some weird eyelid signs, mm-hmm. stell wags, or the other 25 of the eyelid signs there, yep. and I, or um, I do measure ex ophthalmometry. Mm-hmm. And I just, and you just look at them, you think, man, they look strange. Yep. And, and they think, no, I'm fine. But um, yeah. so tell us a little bit, what's the state of the art in thyroid? Yeah, the, uh, the majority of patients that have hyperthyroidism will have some associated aspect of, of thyroid eye disease. It's a v- very wide spectrum. So you have some people that are the severe ones that we see in textbooks, but there's a lot of people with, with other hyperthyroid uh, issues that have dry eyes, irritated eyes, a little bit of eyelid dysfunction, a little bit of proptosis or muscle abnormalities that they don't even think are related to the thyroid disease. So I think it's a very under-recognized issue. Um, and most of the time, by the time that patients come and see me for a thyroid eye disease, it's something that has been watched for a little while. We didn't quite know if it was related to the, the thyroid or if there was something else that was happening. So my end of the spectrum is not seeing a lot of these folks very early in their stages. I see them as they've already sort of developed these things. Um, we know for thyroid disease that the, the modifiable risk factors for thyroid disease are control of your thyroid hormone levels. So if you are poorly controlled as far as your uh, thyroid hormone levels either being too high or too low or a roller coaster of those things, that can make um, your thyroid eye disease and the clinical response to treatments not as successful. And smoking, I mean, it's still the number one thing. And, and I've had patients literally go blind from thyroid eye disease and they have not stopped smoking. I mean, it's, I it's, it's an amazing thing for me to, to have the discussion with people that says, you know, they want to do all this and this and this. How about you quit smoking? Nope, I can't do that. And and uh, it's a difficult thing. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to quit smoking, but it's the number one modifiable risk factor that patients have control over um, that can affect their thyroid disease. Um, these Are you di- doing any uh, decompressions? Or? Yes. Well, yes. The, the, the goal with treatment for all thyroid patients is to prevent the need for decompressions. It will always be a necessity for us if patients are losing vision or causing problems. But I think the the idea is to treat thyroid patients, thyroid eye disease patients earlier in the disease spectrum so we can try to prevent some of the sequelae that happen, some of the scar tissue, some of the proptosis, some of the double vision that we have. So yes, it's still a vision-threatening disease, but I think most of the patients that I see these days, because it's a much more early and easily recognized disease, 
I'm seeing patients earlier in the spectrum that were trying to prevent the proptosis and the double vision and other things. Usually that's with some kind of anti-inflammatory medication. Steroids are still the mainstay for us to, to treat people Systemic. with. Systemic steroids, either oral or IV. Um, there's great studies out there showing IV infusions of steroids can uh, decrease the, the spectrum of, of inflammatory eye disease from thyroid problems um, and have lower side effect profiles. Uh, there's actually a, uh, a really exciting medication that will hopefully be released next year, FDA-approved next year, which will be the first FDA-approved thyroid eye disease medication. What is um, it? It's called Teprotumumab, and it's a, it's a monoclonal antibody to the insulin growth factor 1 receptor, um, and it's still in the development stages, but they've passed their phase three clinical trials, and it's very exciting for, for oculoplastic surgeons and, and clinicians in general because it, thyroid eye disease can be a debilitating problem. Um, and, and it's usually people in the prime of their life who have this serious problem that, that causes them to have double vision and proptosis and a lot of other problems. Um, and this medication is, is promising. It, it, it's still, you know, we haven't used it for the, for the wide variety of the population yet, um, but it can show proptosis reduction, diplopia reduction, basically limit how much inflammation people get from this disease. So it's, oh, it's exciting. Good. It's really exciting. Yeah, a lot of people have it and we look at them. I, I did make a mistake as a as a young optometry student, I was in the Army and I had a summer rotation, and, and I was in the South, and I was a larger African-American woman. I pulled her lid back, and her, and her eye did go on her cheek, yep. Uh, yep. and I pushed it back in. Yep. So I just yep. used my inclination, and yep. I, I looked it up in, uh, yep. Um, yep. in Stuart Elder, or uh, Stuart, yep. uh, yeah, and, yep. and it said there's a few people that, and fortunately, she had a longer optic nerve, yep. and she did not evulse, but I thought... Uh, sometimes you got to think on your feet. Absolutely. I don't know, have you ever had to push I've, someone's eye back? I, in? I have. Okay. I've, I've had to do that a couple of times, a couple okay. with Graves patients and a, a, a patient who had a meningioma that, that had that happen. Every time we check his eye pressure, his eye would come out. So we had were prepared for it. Um, you but just it's, push it back in, right? Push it back in. Okay. But it's but I mean, it, yes. The hope is it doesn't come out in the first place. Right. But you don't have a whole lot of other option when no. that happens to you. <laughs> but yes, I have distinct memories of that happening okay. as well. So, so you remember so that. I re- okay. remember those few All times right. that that happens. Absolutely. Now I've had a patient recently. Um, and he was complaining about a fleshy growth. I said, that's your lacrimal gland. Mm-hmm. And his lids went back beyond the equator. Mm-hmm. So are, are you able to see the lacrimal gland on some of these patients? Mm-hmm. You can. And, I mean, you can see lacrimal gland in, in any patient. Um, the lacrimal gland is supposed to but sit. But you could see both lobes. It was, it was very interesting. You, you, I hope it was. Right. I hope I missed that. No, no. I, 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 I showed it to him, right. and I said, that's your lacrimal right. gland. As you know, the, the lacrimal gland is supposed to sit in the outside corner of the eye socket underneath, yep. the, lac- un- underneath the orbital bones. There's a component of it, which is in the eye socket and the component which is in the eyelid um, and it has a connective tissue structure that sort of keeps it in place uh, very commonly um, as all tissues mature so does those those uh, soft tissue connections that keep that tear gland where it's supposed to be and so you can see it start to creep down over the over the eye um, I also see that a lot um, and it's sometimes confused with actually the prolapsed orbital fat the eye right. socket fat that can come forward they have a slightly different color and sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's lacrimal gland or some of that fatty tissue that's coming like forward. Like a dermoid. Uh, it just actually just as, as the lower lid bags that we're talking about okay. basically the orbital fat um, instead of being post behind the equator starts to creep underneath the conjunctiva and starts to come forward yeah. and actually be really uncomfortable for patients because they feel that sort of irritation and dryness. So um, that can be uh, sculpted back into a more appropriate position in some of those folks. But always have to keep in mind that the lacrimal gland is right there and the ductules are right there. We right. don't want to cause any other trouble with those kind of things. So, so maybe so. we can go over a little bit on uh, dacryocystor rhinostomy. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, a couple of patients and they claim it's one of the most nasty surgeries they've had. And I have one that I want to refer to. She says, no, I'm going to wait. Mm-hmm. So uh, just because 
it was so troublesome. And she said, you know, I don't have the epiphora anymore. I think mm-hmm. she was just saying that. So right. I would not right. push her to, right. to go right. to you. But right. what's, um, it seems like we should have a, maybe a simpler surgery for that. But it is a pretty involved surgery, isn't it? It's, it's um, yes and no. It is, it's more involved because we have to work with bone and we have to work inside the nose when we're doing these procedures. But in, it, it, you know, it's a 30 to 45 minute surgery. Most folks really don't say it's that painful. The hardest part is that they have a little bloody discharge out of their nose and their mouth. I tell patients they're gonna have some bloody boogers yeah. for a few days. Um, but I, I think for me, it's, uh, it's about patient education. Um, when, I, when a patient comes in as a tearing patient to see me, um, I always draw out the lacrimal system. I always show them exactly how it works because a lot of people will say, I've had this and this done and even had DCR, dacryocystic rhinostomy surgeries that didn't really understand what was happening in those procedures. So I find it very helpful to educate patients on how their tear system works and the lacrimal outflow system works. Then in my hands, when they get to me, usually I irrigate their lacrimal systems to, to sort of see if there's right. an obstruction somewhere. And if there is an obstruction, we talk about the, the option of doing the DCR surgery. There's multiple ways of doing the DCR surgery. Um, I try to hide the incision of mine through the natural tear trough that we talked about earlier, so it's not a very noticeable scar from the outside. But I also do a lot of endoscopic DCRs, which means we're doing it with a camera system through the nose, so there's either small or no incisions on the outside. Oh, nice. Um, I find that most useful when I'm having a patient who has recurrent problems after a, a previous DCR surgery, because I can look at things from both sides. I can look at it from the inside to see where scar tissue is. Um, some of the sur- surgical technicians say it's fun because it's sort of like playing a video game, because we get to use cameras and look inside the nose to really see where the anatomy is with the lacrimal system. But it doesn't require an external um, incision these days to do these types of procedures. Um, it, it's not, it, it's, I think it's all about managing patient expectations. Mm-hmm. If you tell a patient this is going to be as simple as cataract surgery, they're going to be disappointed in how you so do things. you're not doing it through the canaliculus. So, so you are... you're actually making an incision uh, in front of the tear ducts the lacrimal sac, the tear duct structures, so that you can reflect the tear duct structures away from the underlying lacrimal bone that's there. You have a piece of the maxillary bone, which comes forward, which is very strong. Right behind that is a piece of lacrimal bone, which is actually weak. We're trying to make about a one uh, centimeter um, uh, defect in that bone to connect things. I see. Um, What I do is I stick my pinky in. I feel like if I can stick my pinky through it, then it's big enough for for us to have successful surgery. But yes, we do have to remove bone. This typically has to be done under general anesthesia, uh, unlike the sort of sedation we talked right. about earlier, and it's actually not that painful of a surgery. There's not a lot of, of, uh, of pain nerve fibers that run through that spot, but it's very awkward and very uncomfortable for patients because they can hear and sometimes feel the, the bone moving around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not fun to be awake when someone's picking your nose. So that's why I typically do these right. with patients asleep. But again, it's usually less than an hour. Um, if you prepare them to have some bloody stuff coming out of their nose and the mouth after surgery, it's a very powerful surgery. It's over 95% successful. Oh, it is. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's uh, external. Uh, used to be the endoscopic approach was thought of to have a little lower success rate, but these days people have become more comfortable with it. It's about as equal success rate between the two surgeries. And honestly, it's some of my happiest patients. It's hard to explain. um, It's hard for a patient who has chronic tearing to explain how much that gets in the way of their life. Tears running down their cheeks, chronic infections, chronic redness. If I can take that away, some of those are my, some of my happiest patients that you can do that. Yeah, they so, come in with a hanky, so you know. Exactly. You can see them across the room. Exactly. You can see them across the room. They're complaining about yep. a piffer and they don't have a hanky. Yep. I'm like, what do you got right. once in a while? Right. And I joke with them, I'm a, I'm a plumber. You know, yep. My job is to fix the plumbing in the, in the eyelid systems and get things where it's supposed to be. And that's a rewarding surgery uh, because patients are, are pleased when it when it's, it's successful. Do they usually so. have dacrocystitis with it? Or is they it, can. Um, um, dacrocystitis, if, you if you're an adult and you have a dacrocystitis, 
cystitis, you need a DCR, okay? Um, because that means that you have a, a complete blockage of those things. I've only had one or two patients in my whole career that have had a daiquiri cystitis oh, really? that did not have a complete oh, nasolacrimal duct obstruction. Should we be prescribing um, like a combination steroid antibiotic to help them with that? If, for, for an active but, infection? Yeah. For an active infection, it usually requires, if it, depending on the severity of it, usually requires a combination of topical antibiotics and oral antibiotics. Oral, yes. um, because occasionally, it's rare, but occasionally those can even turn into an orbital cellulitis if they're not okay. managed appropriately. So um, I'm, I'm low on the threshold to, uh, I'm quick to give oral antibiotics to prevent those things from happening. And the trick surgically is, I can do a surgery, a DCR surgery when they have an active dacryocystitis, but the success rate's a little lower. So we try to treat them oh. once the tr once the infection is gone then we can go back and do the surgery and sometimes we end up chasing our tail a little bit because we'll fix it we'll get them all set up for surgery get them off their blood thinners and then they'll get another infection oh, and see. so sometimes it takes a little while to get them arranged in order for us to do it but uh but are again you trying to avoid fluoroquinolones now with the amount of people that are uh they say they're floxed and uh i think there's it's, it's under reporting and mm -hmm. it seems like the eye care professionals don't really deal much with the problems with fluoroquinolones. The, so, and those people are very ill, and I, there's no cure right. for it. So, I, I care professionals. Uh, uh, I mean, avoiding fluoroquinolones. I care professionals in general um, don't prescribe a whole lot of systemic antibiotics for things. Mm -hmm. There's not a. There, I mean, there are some that we all see. Yeah. Uh, I feel like in my hands, I do more just because of the superficial right. infections and things along those lines. Uh, but these days, I just assume that any infection that comes in is is MRSA. I mean, that, that okay. in my hand, and it's it's such a common thing that we see causes abscesses, causes this dacrocystitis, causes superficial infections. So so I just assume that, that these things are MRSA until proven otherwise. And so I, I treat them with oral antibiotics that can cover those things typically. What would be your, your uh, and, most and, common and, and go to? Most, most common go-to is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or Bactrim is the is yeah. the name for it. Okay. Um, and usually I treat those folks, uh, Bactrim double strength or DS, uh, and that's it's easy because it's a p twice a day pills, and you can treat them for a week to 10 days. And that usually takes care of most things, including MRSA. How about so, for a uh, preceptal cellulitis? Same thing. That's what, I, that's what I do for most of my superficial infections okay. of the tissues. Um, and again, if you, can, if you can culture something and figure out what the exact bug is that's causing it, um, then, then uh, please, please do. That's a sulfa drug, isn't it? it? It's a sulfa drug. Okay, so yep. you have to really watch yep, that. You do too. have to watch the sulfa drug aspect of it. But it does do a good job with those superficial infections, and it, and, and it treats things quickly. And, and, uh, and there, I use a lot of antibiotics, but that's sort of my – when people ask me, I've got something going on, what should I treat them with? That's my go-to unless they have an allergy or other problems with things. So I'm going to uh, ask you one final question sure, about a please. common problem, sure, and then we'll wrap it up here because we've gone through really the whole host of uh, areas that you are specialists in. Yeah, this has been so fun. Bell's Thank palsy. you. Bell's yes. palsy. Okay, so tell us, uh, you know, what we need to know, what what our listeners need to know about Bell's palsy. Absolutely, Bell's palsy is a tough problem. Um, if, if we we always hope that it's a, a temporary thing, and then we just have to temporize the situation by adding lubrication or protection to the ocular surface. But if it becomes a pro chronic problem with the facial nerve palsy, uh, we have to think of ways that we can try to protect the eye. Um, there's a lot of interesting research going on right now of trying to reanimate the face, and and that's that's sort of a a uh, major medical center kind of procedure these days, but you're actually uh, nerve grafting from other parts of the face. And so I, I mentioned that to say down the road, that may be an option for some of these chronic patients is to have some nerve grafting. And basically they take nerves from one side of the face that works to the side of the face that doesn't work to try okay. to bypass the system that's not working. Very interesting. It's it's uh, works great in some folks and not in others. Um, but that's sort of the, the hope in the future is that it's it's not a, it's not a temporary solution to these folks. There's a more permanent way to get them back to normal. 
because as you know, if they have a facial nerve palsy, currently um, all the treatments that I'm trying to do are to try to protect the eye better, but I'm not making the eyelids actually work the way that they're supposed to work. So, so you're working on the face at all? Do you do recommend massage or we can anything else uh, systemically? Um, so it depends. Or? So uh, a lot of times facial nerve palsies have a, a uh, herpetic component to it. So okay. meaning that um, there's studies that show that some um, antiviral therapies can help uh, recover some of these things more quickly than others. Should we try others. that? Like put them on Bambir, Veltrex, It's not a bad idea. I, I typically involve their, the rest of their medical team okay. when I'm doing those kind of things. So I'm, I'm typically not the one who's at the forefront of treating that. It's just an interesting find. Right, because um, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. I, I would like to have them not develop jaw winking mm-hmm. or uh, Fry syndrome or auricular mm-hmm. temporal syndrome, where mm-hmm. you know uh, different nerves connect to different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, absolutely like right. The, that, those are tough problems to fix. Salivary glands yeah. go to the uh, lacrimal gland yeah. and such. Yeah, M- most of the time, other patients, well, most of the most patients that I see with this are patients who have tried conservative therapies. And they're to a point where something surgical needs to be done to try to protect their eyes better. I see. Um, and there are uh, some people, it's rare these days, but there's still some people who talk about doing sort of surgical springs and things like that that try to open and close the eyes a little bit better. The problem with all that is it's hard to implant a, a mechanical device in someone yeah. and expect it to stay where it's supposed to because no. it doesn't. Um, so a lot of times uh, my approach is to try to figure out if we need to work on the upper eyelid or lower eyelid or a combination of those things. Um, we can make the upper eyelid work more appropriately by implanting a weight in the upper eyelid. Or like a gold weight? Like a gold weight. Cool. We can a lump of gold, a lump of platinum. They actually have chains that you can implant in people's eyelids oh, now. Um, and there's even reports of sort of a temporizing measure actually using some of those fillers we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. You can actually use a filler Maybe gold weight. they can have weight. like a little ring put in their it, lid. It, it's, it, all of these things is to try. Don't put it through your nose. Right. Put it yeah, exactly. Your eyelid, you, you, don't make the, you don't make the muscles work better, that is yeah. the eyelid functions more efficiently because it's easier to initiate a blink in those folks. Um, if you have a total absent blink and they don't close it all, at all, a gold weight doesn't do you much good. So you have to have the initiation of some sort of blink. And, and even with patients with gold or platinum weights in their eyelids, it, it's a slower blink. So patients have to retrain themselves on right. how to blink to protect their eyes appropriately. Um, a lot of times we also see lower eyelids being really loose in those folks. You see the nerve palsies, the eyelids hanging down. So I do a lot of lateral canthal tightening, ectropian right. surgeries to put things back together. And when I do that, I also attach just a little bit of the lower eyelid to the upper eyelid and a little uh, tarsorphy in the corner yes, so that when they open up their eyes, they're pulling the lower eyelid with it. Uh, so a lot of times you can do that and avoid having to put a gold weight into someone's eyelids. With yeah, it's interesting how many people actually have a short lower lid mm-hmm. so uh, in, a shallow, in a shallow orbit. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought, boy, the short lower lid, you know, it's kind of difficult because you're doing, we do some uh, lipoflow activators or you're doing scleral lenses and you think, mm-hmm. What is wrong with that lid? It's right. a short right. lid. I don't not, know. I'm calling not, it a short just lid. not working the way it's supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, it's a short right. lid. Right. So. Right. But, it, the, but the facial nerve palsy, the, the Bell's palsy, it's, it's a frustrating problem because it's not only a, a functional component to protecting the eye, but it's also a lot of patients, um, it's not just the eyelids. You know, they have trouble drinking out of a straw. People notice they can't smile. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal for a lot of folks. Um, and so a, another part of what I do is I overlap with what I do around the eyelids with other facial plastic surgeons and plastic surgeons that are working on these things. And sometimes they'll do slings in the face or other things to try to get the, the cheeks and the jowls and the, the mouth in a better position, and I'll work on the eyelids. So it's it's fun to have a collaborative uh, approach to patient care with those other specialties. Yeah, that's, that's interesting with all the loose muscles, but 
How about the patients with blepharospasm? Are you using Botox or Xeomin or what, mm-hmm. what's your favorite Absolutely. treatment on um, the, blepharospasm? The, the, I, I, I tell benign patients central benign and central blepharospasm is, is, a, is an imbalance between the, the nerves and the muscles of the tissues mm-hmm. around the eyelids, and it's, it can be a debilitating problem. I mean, Oh, yeah. I the, see them with the dry eye, and, the, absolutely. and I think, look, at, the first thing you have is you've yep. got blepharospasm, yep. and, and a lot of those patients have corneal uh, neuropathy, mm-hmm. and they have to be educated. It is. This is, uh, it's not totally a dry eye problem. Right. They're so sensitized now. Right. It, it's, it is. if you it, can relax, right. their, if you can make it just so they can yep. go outside yep. or, or go in the light. Absolutely. I mean, I think right. it's a big it, it difference. Is. The wrong. dryness, light, wind, all those things really right. activate that, that system. Um, and botulinum toxin injections have really become the mainstay in therapy because it's, it's predictable. Um, it's appropriate. Um, the the good of botulinum toxin injections, and there are multiple brands that do that, um, is that it's an easy injection we do in the office. It takes somewhere between two to five days, sometimes up to a week to have a full effect of the medication. Um, but in experienced hands, it's a predictable result in how we get these people treated. And, and the hope and treatment for this, the medicine lasts anywhere between, usually about three months when we do the injections. So so people do have to I have to maintain good relationships with these patients. They come back and see right. me. And I joke with them that, that I really don't have that many chronic patients because if I do a good job I'm sending the patients back to their referring right. doctors so my blepharospasm and hemifacial spasm patients really become my long-term patients because um, I'm able to, to uh, treat them appropriately over a long period of time um, and the other interesting thing that I learned in my career is it's it's a very it's, it's a wide spectrum of symptoms that people have um, usually the the most common thing that I see them for is the spasm around their eyelids but sometimes it's forehead sometimes it's lower on their face sometimes people will say if we could just get rid of this little spasm that's here I'd be happy I have patients where I only inject across their eyebrows. I have some that I inject just on their cheeks and the lower on the lower face, mm-hmm. and that's enough to sort of take the edge off of the problems that they're having. But uh, botulinum toxin injections are a very powerful way to to make those patients have normal lives. Because if your eyes are squinting closed and squeezing closed all day, you can't drive, you can't watch TV, you can't interact with with society, um, and so. Um, it's, it's, again, very satisfied, happy patients that we can take care of with those problems. So, Well, Dr. Chappell, you've covered the whole gamut of oculoplastics and more. And the fun thing is, it, it sounds like you've got a fun profession. You I, know? I, lo- and, I love what I do. I really... And everything uh, I, the, that you deal with, you could actually see. Absolutely. So it's too many uh, other physicians. They're using indirect tests and lab studies and all for things that they can't really see. So everything that we do, I mean, we're actually looking at it and we can see it. And, right. and the nice thing is you can, get, you can get some results and make a big difference in, in people's lives and act, their activities of daily living. Right. So, so you're not really working, are you? You're just having I, fun. I love, I love what I get to do. <laughs> I, get to, I get to help folks. I get to interact with folks. Um, I joke that I just get to sit in office and hold court all day. And just people come in, I get to talk to them, learn about them, yep. figure out how I can help them, and then they, they head out. It's, it's wonderful. What so, do your kids think you do? Um, they, they know I'm an eye doctor, and, and they know I'm an eye lid doctor is what they call it. Um, my five-year-old, he's now five, he's a kindergartner, actually had a fall last year and actually cut his eyelid open. I was out of town at a different clinic, so another colleague did the repair, um, but it was funny because the colleague would call me every day and make sure that he did a good job because, you know, I, we look at eyelids all day. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, they know that I'm an eye, they, ca- they call me the eyelid doctor in the family, so it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun. We have a good time. Well, you gr- sounds like you're already grooming him to go into ophthalmology. They don't have so. a choice. No, I'm okay. just kidding. No, I'm just that kidding. That didn't it's, work well for my, uh, for my sons. <laughs> so. But we want to thank you so much for uh, doing this audit in an audible way. So usually the oculoplastics got the coolest slides and, you know, right after somebody's eaten dinner and uh, showing the most gory <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, cancer <laughs> sl- slides and everything. But 
hopefully we've given people uh, enough description to have a good imagination. And I know this is a this is uh, an area where a lot of uh, doctors struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, especially lumps and bumps and skin mm-hmm. things. And what do we do? But yeah. We appreciate all of you specialists out there who who help us out and help these patients out. So yeah, it, it, it's great to have an oculoplastic person on speed dial that you can call oh, there if you're you running go. into issues. Okay. So, uh, do you have any other words of wisdom? What we should be doing, or any recommendations for um, things that we should be doing better as a more basic uh, eye care provider? I, th- I think just opening lines of communication is the best way to do things. I think if if there's a question of what something is or what treatments could be appropriate or or anything that can help the patient, just ask the questions. Um, if, if there's a bump that's not acting the way you want it to, it's much easier to ask the question than, you know, lose that patient for a couple years and come back and turn it into a bigger issue. Um, I think it's it's an under, oculoplastics is an under-recognized um, uh, uh, profession in the fact that we can profoundly affect people's activities of daily living by making them see better by lifting up eyelids and making them uh, their tissues work more appropriately. So I think having a good relationship uh, between uh, referring physicians and oculoplastic surgeons is, is to the great benefit of the patient. Now, if our listeners wanted to contact you, what would mm-hmm. be the best way to contact you? Yeah, so I'm at, I'm at the Moyes Eye Center um, in Kansas City. Um, we've got two offices, one in the Northland and one in Lee Summit, um, and I split my time between those two places. And uh, we We've got a great website with information for patients on the on what we treat and what we you have see. Email and uh, and and emails is all appropriate on on the website. You'll be able okay. to contact me with any of that information. So M O Y E S. Yes, Moyes Eye Center. Center dot com. I, or is I, it Moyes I believe it's Moyes Yes, but uh, if you look up Google Moyes Eye Center and you will you will find us and, and links to all of the the uh, the uh, treatments that I can help folks with. So, all right. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. And for everyone who uh, wants to learn a little bit more, we will have Dr. Chappell's uh, biography and information on the website. All right, so we'll end it here. And thank you again for joining Entrepreneur and our podcast. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.